0: Oh, All right, so I want to give, give Adrienne a big hand. She's going to talk to <laughs> us. Our next. All right, here we go. So Bentley uh, got a hold of my slideshow when I was working on it, and I just left it that way. <laughs> I was born in Prescott, Arizona in 1982. I went to four elementary schools before we settled down outside of Portland, Oregon. I have childhood memories from the beaches of Mexico and adolescent memories from the beaches of Spain. I had never met anyone with an intellectual disability, except for my host family in Spain had a relative with Down syndrome. He couldn't read or write, but he could manage the metro system and smoke and swear up a storm. (laughs) And he fiercely wanted a girlfriend. His mother was told when he was born in the 50s to put him in an institution, but she refused. I grew up in a complicated home that could be an entirely different talk, But I have many joy-filled memories, a long-time desire of pleasing others, and having fun. Oh, and acceptance, which is where the story begins. So on a beautiful sunny day in August, the collision. 2008, Bentley John Crawford is born. Joy, but blue baby, five days in the hospital, cardiology follow-up. Down syndrome is a medical condition. Oh, I'm so sorry. Therapy, therapy, therapy. To me... He was just my baby. When Bentley was about two and a half years old, we lived in inner-city Detroit, and we were part of an inner-city ministry that focused on relationships and community building. There were often churches from surrounding suburbs that came to serve and connect. One Saturday evening, we went to my dear friend Kelty's house for a dinner gathering. It was cold, there was snow on the ground, and I had Bentley bundled up to get out of the house, and Clayton was in tow as well. Neither one was walking. And as we were putting on our shoes in the room, a man from this other church approached me, and he told me about a little boy in their church who also had Down syndrome. And he said they changed his diet, they prayed for him, and with enthusiasm he said, and no more Down syndrome. I was struck by his comment and immediately knew the fallacies in what he was saying. But as I mentioned, my boys were bundled and we were walking out the door into the snow. So I just left the party. But I never forgot the moment. This type of interaction, a stranger telling me how to fix my broken son, didn't just start there. It started the day he was born and continues on even to today. So many have formulas for fixing my family. And it's in these myths, these misunderstandings, these views of my broken child that I have realized I must fight to tell the true story of my son, and not just my son, but the millions of others before him, now, and after him. My son has Down syndrome, which is a genetic condition that literally changed every cell in his body. We all have 46 chromosomes, 23 from our biological mothers and 23 from our biological fathers. These things determine things like gender, hair color, eye color, skin color, how tall we'll be if we have a predisposition for things like diabetes, cancer, high blood pressure, addictions, etc. For my son... He has three copies on the 21st chromosome, which is why it's called Trisomy 21. And the doctor who first described this collection was named John Downs. So that's why it's named that. Based on these facts, it is literally impossible to change the genetic makeup of my son. No prayers, no food diets, no witch doctor, nothing. He was born with it, and he'll die with it. This incident happened when I was 28 years old, and I was still much forming my beliefs about God and disability. At this point in my spiritual journey, I had decided that I believed that Bentley was knit in my womb the same way that he had knit Clayton and later Lily. And I knew that Bentley would have a a lifetime of unique needs, but I also knew that I was going to be okay. We're going to move into history. It's hard, and I'm going to fly through it but I have access to resources if you would like to learn more thoroughly on your own time. We have to understand history to understand the present. The suggestion of this man didn't come from anger or hatred of my son, but it came from historical movements of the church and culture and from a belief that he is inherently and uniquely broken and needing to be fixed, to be like the rest of us who are theologically broken but somewhat whole and able to contribute to society. Prior to the arrival of Jesus, a man by the name of Aristotle created a law to prevent the rearing of deformed children. In Rome, they were persecuted and thrown into the Tiber, some were mutilated to increase their value as beggars, and others were left in the woods. And as adults in Rome, they were used as court gestures and playthings. Jesus was revolutionary in his love. He had compassion on those with disabilities, and he preached on their value. In the Middle Ages, the church began to speak out that they were children of a loving and caring God. The Roman Catholic Church provided refuge, but the conditions were custodial, and many didn't survive. In the 1550s to 1600s, we have ships of fools and idiot cages. During the French Revolution, a common belief that one is worthy of dignity, not because of wealth or status, because one is a human being. Your value doesn't decrease based on someone else's inability to see your worth. However, we have regression, because there were concerns in population growth and fears that they would run out of food. So in the 1800s, people who were defective in any way should be eliminated. Only those who are normal were able to contribute to society and allowed to survive. Then we have the Industrial Revolution. Slave wages, squalid conditions, and children worked 12 to 16 hours a day. Extreme poverty for everyone, but especially the disabled. In 1850, Dorothy Dix advocated for better services for people with disabilities. She traveled to the United States and found 9,000 people with disabilities destitute of appropriate care and protection, bound with galling chains, bowed beneath fetters and heavy iron balls, attached to drag chains, lacerated with ropes, scourged with rods, and the list goes on. So she helped prepare the wave for institutions. In 1875, many states opened custodial institutions, This was the beginning of another dehumanizing process. The new institutions did not interact with the community. They were located in rural areas away from the view of most people. And then in 1890, fear again. Anyone who looked or acted differently was feared. We had many immigrants entering this country. And they were... And so with all the fear, they were seen as people who needed to be controlled, a menace to society. They were seen as criminals, and they were sterilized. And this was a headline, some people are born to be a burden on the rest. In the 1936, million Jews died, and 100,000 people with disabilities were targeted and killed. Oh, this... Okay, so in 1965, Senator Robert Kennedy visited Willowbrook, and this is what he said. We have a situation that borders on a snake pit, and the children live in filth, that many of our fellow Americans are suffering tremendously because of lack of attention, lack of imagination, and lack of adequate manpower. I think all of us are at fault, and I think it's long overdue that we do something about it. So at Willowbrook, there were 5,200 people, which was 65% over the rated bed capacity, and a daily rate of $5.50 a person, which was half what we were giving to animals in a zoo. Finally, some changes. 1974 Housing and Community Development Act, Brown versus Board of Education, Education for All, 1983 Voting Accessibility for the Elderly and Handicapped, 1988 Air Carrier Access Act, and then in 1990, the ADA Clear and Comprehensive National Mandate for the Elimination of Discrimination Against Individuals with Disabilities, Employment, Public Services, Public Accommodations, Telephone Companies, that served the general public to also provide interstate and interstate telecommunication relay services for persons who are deaf, hard of feeling, hearing, speech impairment, and required closed captioning of all public service announcements produced or funded, funded by a federal agency. And in 1991, the Civil Rights Act. So here's the thing that needs to be understood. The educational system Oh, wait, no. This is a quick slide about the day that Nella was born. Here we go, or a video.
1: I started my 30s in a picturesque world. I had a supportive husband, a budding photography career, Saturday breakfast with friends, and a daughter who proved every day that motherhood was rich and rewarding. The anticipation of our second daughter's birth reflected that theme. A perfect pregnancy and the excitement of knowing I'd get to do it again, experience the miracle of birth and that moment, that euphoric moment of being handed my child and seeing her face to face for the first time. That moment came, but I never could have prepared myself for what followed. Hi, baby. Oh, hi. Hi. Is she Okay. Yes, honey. They she's, she's sure. Eyes. She's perfect. Her I knew the moment I first saw Nella that she was different. I knew she had Down syndrome even though everyone else in the room smiled and snapped photos and told me everything was just fine. And my world collapsed as I held my new daughter. Moments that should have been sealed with joy and tears and elated happy birthdays. I was numb. I was grieving the loss of the child I had expected while the child I welcomed looked into my eyes and begged me to love her that was my defining moment. I wrote this story because I realized soon after Nella's birth that the unexpected in her life was really an opportunity, a challenge that would stretch my perspective and change me, and I wanted to remember it. All of it. The deepest grief, the tears I cried, the replenishing laughter, the friends and family that showed up, but eventually the greater picture. The fact that you cannot control the things that happen in your life but you can certainly control the way you spend your life. Bloom is both a love story between mother and child and a reminder of the power of perspective. As Mary Oliver said, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? And on that day when I thought my world was collapsing, really it was just expanding. I hope readers grasp the message of embracing all that life offers, grief included, and making something grand of it.
0: So why is the previous video so raw? And why do some of us identify so deeply with what she was saying? So here's the thing that has to be understood. The educational system, the medical system, the social service system, they're all based on deficits. I began reflecting on all the labels that have been given to my son, and I pulled up old reports, and I realized you probably wouldn't believe me if I told you, so I took some screenshots. So the first report was at two months old. He does not yet get hands-to-mouth and has decreased midline posture of head and arms. He does not yet get hands-to-mouth. He attends well to adult faces. Here um, it talks about him being at a a nine-month level, and yet he's 12 months old. According to the early intervention developmental profile, he is working on large motor skills at the nine to 11 month. He is not yet attempting to place pegs or puzzle pieces, as he prefers to hold, bang, and mouth the items. It is recommended that. Um, Bentley continued receiving speech and language services at least once a week. Problem list. Profound motor speech impairment. Severe expressive language impairment. Secondary to motor speech impairment. History of Down syndrome and ankyloglycemia. Birth. History. Unremarkable. I don't know. I guess his birth was pretty remarkable. (laughs) My friend wrote this poem, and I think it's really powerful. It's called the label. The first label plastered on my son's tiny forehead was jaundice. Don't worry, they said. I wondered, how do you do that? The second label smeared on my son's perfect lips was failure to thrive. It's not because you're a bad mother, they said. I wondered, why do I feel like one? The next label hammered on his head was he's going to be fine. Oh, how I wanted to believe that one. I tried. The label was soon ripped away, only to be rudely replaced with neurologically impaired, then developmentally delayed. Yep, this is a long-term condition. Then learning disabled, then seizure disorder, then educable mentally impaired, then trainable mentally impaired, then, oh yes, I've got it. Low functioning, educably mentally impaired with learning disabilities. There was only one label left. It is for the mother. Raging bull. (laughs) So here's the thing about deficits and labels. When we measure a person by what they aren't doing and label them with these seemingly meaningless words, we are left in a perpetual state of not really knowing a person. If I say to you, my son has Down syndrome, I mean, what does that really mean to you? Do you know someone with Down syndrome? Will you now compare my son to this person, who, and they may or may not be anything alike? My son is a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, adventurous and energetic 10-year-old boy. He loves troll hunters and wild crats, cooking and playing playmobiles. He likes hiking and bike riding, and he loves to put his head out the window on a cool day as we drive through town. He can't watch TV or real shows because of his severe empathy for people. He loves Taylor Swift, especially the song "'This is Why We Can't Have Nice Things.'" He loves animals, and he will make you laugh if you stick around long enough. Oh, and by the way, he also has Down syndrome. Lillian drew this picture, and it says, My brother likes grapes and watermelon. She didn't have to say anything about his disability, about his diagnosis. A quick note about language. Don't say a Downs kid or an autistic kid. Do say a child with Down syndrome, a child with autism. The language is secondary and sometimes even unnecessary, to be honest. Don't say he is retarded. Do say he has an intellectual disability. Don't ask if he's high-functioning or low-functioning. First of all, what does that even mean? And second of all, it most likely will hurt the person that you're asking. Recently, I was at a park, and I was speaking with a man who was a teacher. And he told me that I should segregate my son, that he would be better off in the segregated classroom. Not only for him, but especially for the other children. They should not be held back from learning because of my son. So here's the thing. All research shows, and my personal experience aligns with this, if a child has the opportunity to teach another child, it, makes, it solidifies their learning um, and validates it for them, and they get smarter, not dumber. So your child is actually also building other things like empathy, Um, and patience, um, and compassion. And for my son, he gets to watch other children and realize higher expectations for himself. It's a win-win-win. We're going to... Okay, so what can you do? Are you a parent? Begin talking to your children about differences from a young age. Make sure you're exposing them to different kinds of people, places, food, smells, so that differences are celebrated and not feared. How do I do that? Well, go downtown. Go to the library. Find out if programs you are looking into include kids with intellectual disabilities. If not, why not? How can more kids be included? Sign up to volunteer at the autism group, the Down syndrome group. They all have walks and Christmas parties and all of it. What can you do? Here's a a list of book, a website to access books, books on um, disability empowerment. And then you need to ask yourself, Is this a book about disabilities, or is this a book about something else, and the protagonist has a disability? This is an important question to see if you're constantly explaining something versus allowing kids to see their peers with disabilities as equal in parts of the stories. For example, kids with intellectual disabilities will have love stories, too. They'll have stories of accomplishing their goals, and it may or may not have anything to do with the disability itself. Life happens to all of us uniquely. Okay, so we're gonna watch a trailer to a documentary about um, sub-minimum wage. People with disabilities are not capable of working. That's the biggest lie I ever heard.
1: The minimum wage is offered to everybody. Except for people with disabilities. People with disabilities are being paid less than minimum wage. On average, under $2 an hour across the country. How would you like to work for two weeks and come out with a $6 check? It's all based on the assumption that they're less capable than other individuals. No, it's not fair. It could be perfectly legal.
0: The management is making very, very
1: significant six figure salaries. Companies have told us that if they had to pay half of minimum wage, that they would probably go bankrupt. So they're just building this own business for themselves, don't you think? I'm a person with a disability, and I've been able to you know, find jobs that pay me um, what I deserve.
0: I may have a disability, but I can still work. I oversee the Bob Boyd Honda Facebook page. It's great. I interact with customers. I talk to the workers. I get paid. I love it.
1: I work at Powell's bookstore. I use assistive technology to help me do what I cannot do physically.
0: I am super proud of my job. I'm in the shipping and receiving at the Boston Children's Hospital.
1: Here I am today. A business owner. I own Pop and Joe's kettle corn. You know the greatest disability. There is it is low expectation. People with disabilities
0: can be paid subminimum wage. We don't feel that's right. There's no reason to pay us less than the minimum wage. When I'm working, I felt I should be paid as an equal person. Rooted in Rights presents an original documentary. So, what can you do? Are you a manager, business owner, entrepreneur? Do you have a voice in your employment? Do you know what subminimum minimum wage is? These are things to be beginning to look into. Can you advocate for someone in your workforce to be able to get a job there? Next, we're going to look at the church, and you're going to mute this one for me. So Pope Francis was addressing the packed hall as the boy freely walked up the marble stairs toward him. The child broke through security and went to pull on the sleeve of a Swiss guard on the podium just meters from the Pope. It appeared as if he was checking to see if the guard was real. At one, st- on, at one stage, the boy was joined by a little girl, presumably his sister, who desperately tried to pull them off the stage. As the child's mother joined the boy in the front of the pope, a brief discussion took place, and the mother explained her son was mute and that he was from the pope's native Argentina. He is Argentinian and unruly, a laughing pope said to his private secretary, who was seated next to him. Leave him. Leave him to play here, the pope said, as the child rolled around in the front of him on the carpet. As the gathering continued, the child was allowed to stay roaming around the podium. This child cannot speak. He is mute, but he can communicate, Pope Francis said. He made me think of myself. "'Am I also so free in front of God?' the Pope asked. He then prayed for the boy. "'Are you part of a church? "'Do you have members with intellectual disabilities? "'Are you accommodating their needs, ideas, "'more music during worship, "'making the sermon more intellectually accessible, "'providing clipboards with paper and drawing utensils? "'Have you offered disability trainings? "'Have you met with the family? "'Are you tolerant of noises and distractions?' The video from the Pope is helpful in how we think of distractions. Many of us are people who like to do things a certain way. We also don't like distractions and chaos. When I first started spending dinner with the Crawford family 15 years ago, two were in school and three were in college. Dinners were relaxed, we cleaned up, we played games, we watched movies, we had conversations. This went on for at least five years. And then Bentley was born and we could still have adult conversations. And then maybe even with Clayton and Lily, we had adult per kid. Well, now there are two toddlers and three elementary kids. Our family celebrations are chaos. They're loud. The food is never right for the kids. Something always gets spilled. The piano is either being delicately played or pounded on by children. There are various expectations from the families um, on the children, and everybody wants to do something different. I had to grow through some growing pains to come to grips that this is okay. This is family, and this is love. When we welcome people with disabilities into the community, and to be frank, all people we must be open to chaos. Our churches might now have talking babies during silent prayer or the groans of a person. Germs will be spread. Kids are loud. And everyone is trying to find their way. I think the thing I'm realizing more and more is that things don't have to be a certain way. Relaxing and leaning into Jesus and community will allow us to be more accepting and love. So my challenge to you and to myself is to remember that we're in a grocery store or in a church or at a school and you see a child struggling, take a deep breath. Jesus reminds us to let the children come to him. He reminds us to be gracious to child and adult. Tell the mom she's doing a great job, even if she's a hot mess, because believe me, she's tearing herself up negatively inside all on her own. She doesn't need it from us. And pray. It's kind of like this photo we tried to take recently with my husband's parents and grandkids. We can either get frustrated. Lily's hands are in the air. Hand, um, viralitos constantly running away. Bentley's various position. Hands on head, hands on face, tongue out. Or we can just laugh because this is family. And it's funny. Um, we have to remember we're still, and the other thing we have to remember is that we are moving from segregation. Institutions, though, are not being added. Individuals are not, The the institutions have not yet closed down because parents willed those children to the state, and so they are still living in them. The reason that the Bloom video is so powerful is because she was afraid. She was afraid of what Down syndrome meant, and I was afraid. I was afraid of what life would be like. But we have to move past fear and into into love. So to end, I'm going to give you some quotes. There comes a time when you realize you are advocating for more than just accommodations. You are realize you are you are really advocating for someone's quality of life, and that's the moment you realize you won't give up. I am not denying that I need help or that I have a disability, but the needs I have are not special. They are human. And finally, what makes us human is not in our mind, but our heart, not our ability to think, but in our ability to love, People with intellectual disabilities have been on the margins of society for far too long, and we are not past it. We are in it. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kids in the city of Tucson with disabilities who are home today. Many will stay home because the parents are overwhelmed. They don't have a wheelchair-accessible vehicle. They don't want to deal with the stairs or have been repeatedly unwelcomed. The best thing that we can do is listen. Listen to the needs of the families in your congregations and communities. And don't and don't just ask once, listen to the needs. Um, and don't just ask once, but observe, reflect, and engage. And remember, we come from a history of segregation. So it's easy to continue to think of segregation when you're starting a ministry. Oh, we're going to have this special needs ministry over here for people with special needs. No, you're going to create things in your churches that are welcoming for everyone. Because everyone should be included. Things should not be segregated. And to end, I'll add this story. About two years ago, Bentley started going up on Sundays when birthdays are announced at our church. So he stands up there, maybe announcing his age, maybe he's 42, we don't know. (laughs) But it's a way that he is seen and heard by the congregation. It's special. He's now asking to help cook. We told him that he has to wait a couple years, so he's a little bit older. But i got to tell you, he cooks at home, and he makes the best egg burritos that you've ever had. So be ready. Thank you. (laughs) Uh <laughs>